You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just woof, a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades. Light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience. I'm your host, Tim Heck, and today I'm joined by Mike Island, a retired Special Forces colonel and West Point graduate in the class of 1961. Mike, thanks for being here today. Thank you, Tim. Can you tell us a little bit about how you wound up in the Army? I can. I was uh, born in 1940, so my earliest recollections are of people in uniform, including my father and uh, my uncle. Those were my earliest conscious uh, memories, and they were just imprinted on me. Sometime after 1945, after 1946, when my father uh, was mustered out of the Army, we were on a train coming up the Hudson Valley. For reasons uh, neither he nor I really know, he shook me and he pointed across the river and he said, that's West Point. And that was imprinted on me also, uh, and it stayed with me. 1952, National Geographic had a spread on West Point, a feature article, and um, that just sealed the deal. That's where I was going to go, and from then on, I was uh, dead set on going to West Point and becoming a soldier. After graduating from West Point, what was your career path? Well, I was commissioned in the artillery. In those days, there was only one artillery branch, both field artillery and air defense artillery. Uh, I was in a field artillery unit in Germany, 155 self-propelled unit. One day I went into my orderly room, my battery, battery orderly room, and there was a staff sergeant there in uniform with boots and a funny green beret. And I got to talking to him. He was up to visit uh, a high school classmate who was in my battery. And we talked and talked and talked. I'm not sure he ever got to see his classmate because he was uh, kidnapped by this uh, lieutenant, and he told me stories of daring do and intrigue and uh, tough training. And from that point, I was dead set on becoming a Green Beret. What was that pipeline like in the early 1960s? There were two pipelines in the early 1960s. Uh, remember that President Kennedy was enamored of special forces, unconventional warfare, etc. And uh, so there was an emphasis on building the special forces uh, capability, a lot of recruiting, and some 
people were voluntold, uh, officers, that they were going to become special forces. And they would do so for one tour and then out. In my case, uh, I went the more conventional way. I went to the special forces qualification course, uh, 1965, Fort Bragg, after having been uh, unsuccessfully dissuaded by the Department of the Army from pursuing this path. Those days, it was an abbreviated course, about six months for officers, uh, because of the imminent and obvious need to get people to Vietnam. Nevertheless, uh, much of our the content of our course was based on OSS in Europe and World War II, uh, so there was kind of a disconnect and in incongruities. And I learned things in the course that I never applied ever since. But uh, it was interesting and to. Uh, learn how they did it in the French resistance and so on, but uh, didn't have much applicability later on. Uh, the things that did have uh, applicability were the operations and intelligence, the uh, engineering, medical, of course, and communications. So it was, uh, it was fairly intense for six months because there was a lot to cram into it. After that, of course, I wanted to get a team and take it to Vietnam. Everybody wanted to get a team and take it to Vietnam who was in my course. Uh, so there was a lot of uh, pushing and shoving and elbowing, and I was lucky, and I got a team. Of course, we all wanted to get there before the war was over. This was 1965. <laughs> and we were afraid we were going to miss out on it. Uh, so I got my team. We went into additional training, a workup for three months uh, before getting on a C-130 to Fort Bragg and heading for Vietnam. When you landed in Vietnam, what was your first impression? Heat. <laughs> it was midnight, and the ramp on the C-130 went down, and just this blast of hot, humid air came in, uh, and it was, it was stifling, it was uh, startling, and it was kind of alarming. So this is what I'm going to have to deal with for the next year, or year and a half, as it turned out. Uh, that was my first impression. Where were you assigned with 5th Special Forces? Well, we had, uh, as I said, had a three-month workup. And during this time, I was assigned to the 7th Group. Our team was in the 7th Group. During this time, uh, there was a lot of administrative back and forth between Special Warfare Center and 5th uh, Group in Vietnam. Orders and uh, rosters and manifests and flight schedules and all of that. So when we arrived at midnight on the 31st of March, 1966, nobody was expecting us, naturally. And so they said, well, who are you guys? And so we were put in tents uh, at the uh, Special Forces headquarters. So they call it Special Forces Operational Base, SFOB. Well, they tried to figure out what to do with this. We had a lot of briefings and more physicals that we had already taken before we left Fort Bragg, but nonetheless, it was something to do. And they finally said, there's a team putting in a camp in War Zone D, north of Saigon, and your team will go help this team establish the camp because it's a tough area and they're having difficulty and kind of on the back foot. So we flew down to Bien Hoa Air Force Base, got on helicopters and flew up to War Zone D to the location of this camp. And uh, coincidentally, the team leader happened to be my classmate, Hank Kenny. Uh, and so it was a fortuitous beginning in that respect. But they kept us there for two weeks and we assisted in building the camp 
in organizing the, uh, the indigenous forces and uh, acclimating ourselves, of course. And then they said, we want you to put in a new camp on the Cambodian border, uh, due west of Saigon, um, probably 60 kilometers, 60, 80 kilometers, but it might have well been 60, 80,000 kilometers from Saigon on the, in, the, in the plain of reeds on the Cambodian border. So we went out there to reestablish the camp. There had been a special forces camp there before. It was overrun in 1963. A number of people killed and three U.S. Special Forces captured. One of them, by the way, was one of the two escapees later on. Isaac Camacho escaped from captivity after a couple of years. So we uh, went back to what was obviously uh, unfriendly territory to reestablish that camp in a slightly different location, but we did so. When you received the mission that you were going back to that camp, what was going through your head? Well, I had heard of Hipwa, the name of the camp, before. It was rather famous because of the uh, the losses that were taken there and uh, mistakes that were seemed to have been made there. And there were lessons learned even before I knew we were going there. So it was uh, it was attention getting, and uh, you know, sort of uh, made one hyper alert <laughs> when we landed there. What did you and your team sergeant talk about in that time? The team sergeant was a legendary figure. Uh, he'd been in Korea. He'd had umpteen deployments to Vietnam and Laos already, and uh, I relied on him for almost everything. One of the few intelligent things that I ever did in the Army was listen <laughs> to, to NCOs like Master Sergeant Pegram, and I followed his lead almost all the time. Uh, so I asked his advice on a lot of it. Uh, we also got a number of briefings at the C team, as they called it then, uh, headquarters in Binhua about what we were getting into and, and the area and what our mission was going to be. The mission was supposedly interdiction of supplies com- coming to the VC uh, through Cambodia. Uh, in fact, it turned out that our mission turned out to be self-defense more than anything because uh, it was definitely their habitat and we were intruders. So we had uh, a lot of busyness uh, defending ourselves. How many soldiers did you take out there with you? We had a 12-man team plus augmented by one person uh, who was uh, a supply sergeant. He was not a supply sergeant by MOS, he was an intel sergeant, but he was uh, one of the best scroungers uh, that we were very lucky to get him as a supply sergeant. And he spent a lot of time away from the camp uh, scrounging things and bringing them back to us. The mission was to interdict, but you said self-defense became the primary mission. Well, there are just so many of them and so few of us, and every time we went out the gate of the camp, we'd get in a fight, and uh, I suppose to a certain extent, by occupying them, we were interdicting. But uh, the idea of putting a blocking force across uh, a supply route, which you think of when think of interdicting supplies, that never occurred. Uh, we would go out, get in fights, and uh, hopefully occupy them in that way, but not to establish a 
a blocking force across a, a supply route. That never happened. The first time you were in one of the firefights out at Hipwa, what happened? Uh, well, of course, I was stunned. Uh, that's the immediate reaction. It's real. <laughs> I mean, we've been through countless ambushes and immediate action drills during our three-month workup, but to actually hear the bullets going by was really alarming. <laughs> and uh, for I was stunned momentarily. I hope it was just momentarily, and then could collect thoughts and start doing the right thing. But that was my first impression. Stunned surprise that somebody's actually at the other end trying to do something to us. Was it just you and your team, or were you also paired with indigenous forces like you'd been uh, in War Zone D? Yes, we, uh, that was the whole point, the uh, Special Forces uh, A-teams, was to pair with indigenous forces, was to recruit, organize, train, pay, deploy indigenous forces. So we had about 300 troops eventually. I had to collect them from scratch. 300 uh, indigenous irregulars that uh, were our partner force, so to speak. And we also had a small four-man, I would say, Vietnamese special forces team that was supposed to be our counterparts. And uh, there was a sort of, um, not a fiction, but a facade of uh, through, by, and with that uh, Vietnamese Special Forces team. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that relationship with the South Vietnamese? Uh, It went from Alpha to Omega. Uh, The first team leader that was out there was a young lieutenant. I just uh, thought he was just great. He had a great attitude, he was aggressive, and he was cooperative, and uh, I just uh, couldn't say enough about him. But I did say, uh, I praised him to his chain of command, and he disappeared. Uh, I think there was a causal relationship there. The next guy was not so great. He was uh, arrogant, uh, know-it-all, was politically uh, connected. I think his father was a general, and he just wasn't interested that much in working with us, except for the money that we brought. You'd mentioned paying. We'll get to that in a second, but how did you go about recruiting the indigenous forces? Uh, that was fascinating. We, um, we had one company of ethnic Khmer, Cambodians, who ethnic Cambodians but from South Vietnam. They had a temple in Saigon, a Buddhist temple, that was Cambodian in nature. As I recall, Team Sergeant and I... Usually we never left the camp together, but I think in this case we, we left the camp together. And we went to this temple. I mean, we'd been instructed to do so, obviously. There had been some groundwork. And we met with uh, a distinguished Cambodian gentleman there. And after some negotiation, he provided a company of troops, uh, fully trained, with their own chain of command. And it, that was easy. And it was fascinating, too. The politics, the ethnic politics of Southeast Asia are very tangled, and that's, that was my first insight into it. The Cambodian troops who didn't necessarily have the same uh, goals as uh, the Vietnamese government, in fact, sometimes were antagonistic, but they fought for us. That was one company. Another company came from a religious sect, which was um, virulently anti-communist, that came from the uh, Mekong Delta, and they came also uh, fully organized, 
with their own chain of command, a lot of experience, and they settled into our camp. They were disparate creatures, the Cambodians and the Huahau, which is the religious sect, um, but uh, by and large got along and had common goals that you know we imposed on them, basically. And then we had a third company, which was ma- ragtag. It was made up of uh, so-called Saigon cowboys, people who were dragooned off the street, people who were deserters uh, from the regular South Vietnamese army, and they were problems from day one. And those three companies, about 300 people, comprised our, our so-called partner force with varying effectiveness. But the Cambodians and the Huahau, I, uh, I loved. How big was the camp you established in terms of area? We set up beside uh, a defunct sugar mill. The area that we were in was uh, all sugarcane fields, fallow, of course. They weren't being um, they weren't being cultivated, and in fact, it was in a free fire zone where anything that moved was fair game. The camp that we set up was not typical of most special forces camps in Vietnam. It wasn't a triangle like the French forts and so on. It was a square, and it was beside the sugar mill. That was our northern flank, was the sugar mill. There was a a little uh, inlet. It was on a river. Our western flank was a river, a large river. And there was a little inlet from that river into the sugar mill, and there was a World War II... LCVP, personnel landing craft, there, which we took over, repaired, and used for transport across the river and up and down the river. Uh, I think we were probably the only ones with in Vietnam ever with an LCVP. It was uh, it was unique. And then our southern flank was the uh, was sugarcane fields, which of course we chopped down to a large extent. I would say that the camp was probably 200 meters on a side square. Were you living underground? Were you living in huts? And what was what was the living condition? We were in pretty good shape. We commandeered a French villa that was next to the uh, sugarcane mill. It had belonged to the management when uh, the French had been there managing the the sugarcane mill and rum distillery. So we we took that over and uh, relatively speaking it was fairly plush. Uh, it was empty, of course. It was just empty rooms, but uh, we had a roof over our heads and a floor, not mud, under underneath us. What was your daily routine like? We had uh, a training schedule, of course, for the troops. We tried to keep them busy all the time. A training schedule, which we would negotiate varying degrees of success with our Vietnamese counterparts. And we had an operations schedule. There was always uh, at least one company size, or company's worth of the indig troops out on operations at all times, along with um, at least two or three of my team. And so uh, it was uh, it was a pretty pretty good routine. We trained in uh, marksmanship, tactics, and first aid, medical things, of course. The operations uh, lasted anywhere from several hours to two or three days, depending on you know, enemy reaction. How often did the camp get probed? Uh, we didn't get probed that much. We got attacked and practically overrun one night. Um, otherwise, I think they just waited for us to come out of the gate. It was uh, May 12, 1966 that uh, we were attacked by uh, a regiment 
uh, Viet Cong Main Force Regiment, and uh, they were the same regiment that had attacked the camp in 1963, and they were very near successful on the second go-around. But uh, they showed that they had some command and control coordination problems themselves, and uh, the attack sort of fizzled out around dawn. They had, as it turned out later from a prisoner, they had some phase lines. And remember I mentioned that inlet where we had the landing craft, which was sunk that night. That was uh, one of their phase lines. The element coming from the north was to stop there. element coming from the south was to coordinate and meet them there. The element coming from the south came into an irrigation uh, drainage ditch that we had just did dug and interpreted that as their phase line. So there was a gap between them. They never did link up, and uh, we were in, in the middle, in between. Uh, it was an intense night, very intense night. Uh, none of my team was killed, but we lost a lot of indige, and they lost a lot as well. Did you have indication that an attack of that size was coming? Uh, no, we didn't. We didn't. I mean, we were always expecting something like that, just because of the nature of the operational environment. But we didn't have any specific indication that it was coming. When did the attack start? The attack started about midnight, around midnight, maybe a little after midnight. And there was no preparation. They had no preparatory fires or anything. They just assaulted with RPGs and small arms. And I don't think they had any mortars or anything like that. They just... They just came at us. Uh, They had, as I say, two axes, one from the north, which ran into the inlet with the landing craft, one from the south, which got confused and stopped at the drainage ditch that we had just dug. And uh, then there was a sort of supporting attack from the east, but that was uh, a secondary secondary effort on their part. And they made it, uh, they were stopped a lot by our wire, on the south, and obstacles that uh, had been put in there, including uh, foo gas, uh, which was uh, gasoline mixed with naphtha, basically napalm. <clears throat> and we put them this mixture into a casing for 105 uh, millimeter artillery propellant, and uh, and then put a det- det cord in it and a detonator, so could blow it just was any other sort of demolition and would spread napalm over, you know, it was a pretty sizable area, obviously. But the, uh, the napalm was homemade. We did it with soap and gasoline and other things that my uh, very inventive engineer came up with. And that, so those sorts of obstacles slowed them. The ones in the north, uh, I can't explain why they slowed down. They could have just kept coming, although they did have in their plan that phase line where they were to stop and the ones in the east were the supporting attack anyway so they were slowed down by a combination of obstacles including wire including fugas claymores and uh, resistance from our troops fortunately we had the cambodian company was on that that flank the southern flank and they put up quite a good resistance they lost some people um the uh Attacking force <clears throat> did get to our house, our team house, and uh, got inside it, but we were outside by that time. When the attack started, where were you? In the house. And then we uh, quickly went into an inner perimeter that had been established and uh, maybe 50 meters away. 
and we took up positions that we'd already rehearsed, of course. Those were the, the team members who weren't actively with the company, the, the three companies trying to organize uh, a defense, a reaction force. The attack lasted six or seven hours. Yeah, I'd say six hours. During that time, what was your role? What was Master Sergeant Pegram's role? How were you commanding, controlling this, this massive fight? My role primarily was to ask Sergeant Pegram what to do and do what he said. But my primary role, I think, was not so much in, in shooting back at the uh, attacking force, but it was to try to get some support. And uh, we never did get it. air support. We were technically within a striking distance of the U.S. 25th Division, which was about, <clears throat> I guess, about 20 clicks away there. But uh, we couldn't get a reaction force there. Uh, to come out, which in some ways is understandable. There's not that many ways to get there, and I'm sure that they were all prepared with ambushes. Uh, so they declined to come until morning, and we did get air support in the morning. But by that time, the VC were already withdrawing. They withdraw, withdrew to Cambodia. And of course, we couldn't, Americans couldn't pursue them into Cambodia. At what point did you sense the battle had turned? Uh, it, it didn't turn so much as it just reached a point of, uh, of uh, stasis, I guess. They were there. We were there. We were shooting back and forth at each other, but not, there wasn't much um, movement, fortunately no movement by them uh, to, uh, to overrun our inner perimeter. Um, by the time first light started to show up, it was fairly, fairly early in the morning at that time of year, uh, and that close to the equator, we started to feel like uh, we were we were not going to lose. <laughs> that uh, we were going to be able to recover our camp and reconstitute our forces and so on. A little bit of optimism may not be the right word, optimism, but a little bit of that uh, as dawn started to, to break. You'd mentioned that a previous camp had been overrun in 1963 in that area. You've talked about rehearsing perimeter defense drills and, and this. At any point in the night, did you think, I'm going to have to evade? Oh, yeah, early on, yes. Um, cannot avoid the, you know, the influence of history, even recent history, and that was certainly in our minds, at the front of our minds all the time, that there was a history there. And it wasn't a happy history for U.S. Special Forces. And, and uh, so it was always a possibility. We remembered uh, what the team members and that other team had done, and uh, basically it didn't work. They got captured. So, yes, there was some trepidation, uh, not just because of the bullets going by, but uh, because of the, the experience, the history of Hipwa in 1963. What are we going to do if we, have to, if we have to unhorse here? And there were limited opportunities for us to do that, because maybe jump in the river. Is that something that, in the moment, you all discussed, or this was something that lived in the back of your head? No, it was in the, it was in the front of the head, but it wasn't discussed. I mean, we didn't get to that point where we said we have to, uh, we have to break off. We didn't get to that point. And we could hear, we could hear the VC yelling, where are the Americans, where are the Americans? The people coming from the south, because they stopped prematurely, and they couldn't find us. So that was, that was heartening in a way as well. <laughs> Dawn breaks, air gets on station. How does the Viet Cong res 
with respond to either aircraft or to the to the light showing up? Uh, they left when it started to get light, and uh, they withdrew to the west towards Cambodia. I think all of them went that way. Uh, some of them could have just gone into the sugarcane fields in the south, I suppose, but um, that would have been dangerous for them. So I think they, they just all went across the river and back towards Cambodia. What shifted in your mindset? Did you say it's time to pursue or it was time to reconstitute? What Reconstitute. Yeah, we, we were in no shape to pursue. Our indigenous forces had taken significant casualties. We just couldn't uh, think about pursuing at that point. And it was an overwhelming force, too. This is a regiment that attacked us. A regiment in uh, Viet Cong terms was really equivalent to a battalion, I suppose, in, in size. But uh, they had a lot more than we did. They had the initiative and... Um, they knew where they were going, so there was no thought of pursuit. We'd hoped that, you know, maybe we could get the uh, U.S. troops to uh, fly over and do a Helleborn operation and pursue them, cut them off, but that was just uh, sort of a casual hope. <laughs> it didn't ever happen. This event happened about five weeks into your tour in South Vietnam. Yes. How did it shift your thought process about the remaining 10 months? It heightened my awareness of just what a vulnerable position we were in. Not just vulnerable uh, from strictly military, tactical terms, but in terms of uh, being intruders or strangers in the, in the environment there. And our adversaries, who were very good, um, were not. They were the locals, and they knew everything, and that was underscored several times by the activities that night. So I'm not saying that I had a major shift in thinking, but uh, it certainly heightened my awareness of our vulnerability. Did you discuss that vulnerability with your higher headquarters? Oh, sure, yes, <laughs> yes. And I think we occasionally then started to get visits from uh, the 25th Infantry Division. Sometimes we would go on joint operations with them, which was very, uh, very constructive in terms not only of the tactical results, but of the training uh, value for our indigenous troops to be alongside U.S. soldiers and to see how they operated. Uh, that was uh, great training value, as well as you know the operational outcome itself. And that happened several times. We get air mobile uh, operations to go across the river and to the vicinity of the border. And a couple of times they sent uh, artillery, um, half a battery to set up around our camp and uh, fire a few missions for a couple of days into the free fire zone. And having them around was, that was comforting. And I think it probably complicated the planning processes for the, uh, the adversary. So we got a little bit of uh, support in that regard, yes. We got more command visits, <laughs> which was a mixed blessing, as you can imagine. But. Did the South Vietnamese Special Forces increase their presence? No. How long did it take to reconstitute the base to a level you thought, okay, we can go back out on patrols again? Well, we started doing that immediately. I mean, going on patrols, <clears throat> local patrols, uh, we could do immediately. We couldn't go on company size operations for a couple of weeks. We had to get new people, ammunition replenishment, 
all of those sorts of normal things that occur after a major action like that. But local patrols, uh, you know, it's like uh, falling off your bicycle. Get right back on. And so we did that, and we started local patrols right away. We also started to redouble our efforts to get some counterintelligence among our uh, indigenous troops to see who might be less loyal than they should be to us. Or to uh, to, and uh, also to get some sources in the uh, outside the camp. Although that was tough because there were very few people, uh, very few civilians outside the camp. It was a free fire zone, and in fact, often when we'd run across civilians, uh, we'd evacuate them, take them back, and they became refugees. Which is something I had mixed feelings about, but that's what we did. What were those mixed feelings for? Well, were we creating uh, more animosity by uprooting these people? They shouldn't have been there. They knew they shouldn't have been where they were, uh, but they were farmers, and they were very simple, rudimentary people, and they were making a living, and uh, families. And they were living underground, uh, I think, Probably most of them would have, if they had been forced to, would have professed loyalty to the Viet Cong, but I don't think they were naturally <laughs> of that uh, of that bent. They were just people trying to make a living. And did we make more insurgents by yanking them out of that and bringing them back to a squalid refugee camp back towards Saigon? So that, those were my mixed feelings. On the other hand, could we have left them there? Not really. The rotation cycle for special forces teams, for your Vietnamese counterparts, for your indigenous troops, what was that like? Uh, the indigenous troops had no rotation cycle. They were there. And uh, the Vietnamese uh, team, I don't, I don't recall that uh, they had a discernible rotation cycle. I th- we had two or three NCOs, Vietnamese NCOs. A couple of them had been with the French army, and I thought a lot of them. Uh, one of them especially, I learned a lot about calmness under fire. The lieutenant, uh, I think, as I indicated, came because I praised his, his predecessor too much and gave him the kiss of death. But that wasn't a normal sort of rotation. It didn't appear to me that they did. For us, we were theoretically there for a year, all 12 of us or 13 of us. But uh, events intruded, and we sort of broke up after in November. So it was six or eight months. What were those events? Well, the main event, I suppose, was uh, me getting relieved of command, along with uh, my team sergeant, Sergeant Pegram. Uh, That sort of started the exodus, and the team, uh, after that sort of, as I understand it, sort of... uh, started to go into different teams uh, one by one and my predecessor or my successor rather was killed uh, which um, you know further made the personnel <laughs> picture complicated that uh, sergeant pegram and i were fired because uh, the nominal reason the stated reason was insufficient cultural awareness that is we let <clears throat> we didn't let the vietnamese team team leader in this case get away with uh, rampant ripping us off Getting relieved in a young officer's career is a huge occurrence and a huge event. What, you know, kind of what prompted that? You've mentioned corruption, and how did you react? 
we, as I say, we paid the, um, or provided the money for the indigenous troops. And there were two separate accounts. One was their monthly salary, and the other was a daily allowance for rations. The monthly salary I could control. I sat at a table next to the Vietnamese team leader. I gave him the money. The troops would walk up to the table, sign their name, put a thumbprint on, and take the money. So I was watching all the time. There was no way he could, at least then, rip off any of that money. The ration money was a different uh, situation. There was a daily allowance. As it happened, uh, we decided to, I think, give it out weekly, but we couldn't give it out to each individual. So we did it through the Vietnamese team, and that's where they were getting to us. That's where the lieutenant was getting to us. We found this out because the indigenous troops came to us and complained. So I tried to jawbone him, tried to shame him, tried to reason with him on the basis of idealism. None, none of that worked. So I said, Sergeant Pegram, what do you think we should do? And he said, we'll just stop paying them all together. And I said, if we do that, they're, not, they're going to mutiny and they're not going to go on operations at the very least. And he said, in his, uh, his way, he said, uh, well, do you have any better suggestions? You've tried everything else. And I didn't. <clears throat> so I stopped paying them. We stopped giving them money. And uh, I was wrong. The indigenous troops did not mutiny. They continued to go on operations. They were hungry, but they knew what was going on. And they, they were willing to, uh, to do their duty. The lieutenant, on the other hand, complained. And he complained through his chain. As I say, his father was a general. <clears throat> and it went across to uh, the C-team commander above me. And he sent down a message that said that uh, Sergeant Pegram and I were to report to the SFOB in Nha uh, Trang for further assignment, that we were relieved as of that. No face-to-face -face meeting, no counseling, no what's going on here, no inquiry, just that's, that's that. And I've since heard that that happened to more than one team leader. But anyway, it happened to me. And I figured, well, that's probably the end of my Army career, but uh, let's see what happens. So I, again, I said to Sergeant Pegram, I said, what should we do now? And he said, in effect, he said, well, stick with me, kid. And uh, I did. And we went on, both of us, to more special special forces things. And it worked out for me. It didn't work out so well for him. He was killed on the 23rd of August, 1968. Uh, getting relieved didn't really have an effect on my career, as far as I could tell. You've mentioned Master Sergeant Pegram multiple times. Obviously a formidable presence and a formative influence in your career. With the hindsight of 60 years almost now, what are some of the key things he taught you that helped you out as you made your way up all the way to Colonel? I think there's one key thing, and that is do something. Don't just stand there, do something. Make a decision. It might be the wrong decision, but make a decision. If you make no decision, that is a wrong decision. And when he told me uh, to stop paying them, that was an example of it. I mean, it's not a battlefield example, but it, uh, it's an example of the, the principle. Do something. I could have just let it go and uh, seen the hemorrhage of our funds, uh, the taxpayers' funds, uh, continue or do something. And for a moment, it seemed like that was the wrong thing to do since I got fired. But uh, it turns out the harder right is the, is the thing to do. 
but do something, move. The other thing, it sounds kind of trivial, especially coming from such a, <laughs> a gruff and imposing man, was breathe. In a fight or flight situation, there are certain physiological and psychological reactions that are instinctive, that are natural. You know, you get tunnel vision, you lose your small motor skills, either hyperventilate or hold your breath, that sort of thing. He said, breathe, because that mitigates some of the other effects is by breathing, but breathe deeply and exhale deeply. And that sounds like a little bit new age, but that was incredibly good advice and a lot of other situations developed in the, the, uh, the years after that. Was deep breathing something that happened that night in May? Oh, yes. <laughs> and a little hyperventilation, too. <laughs> so deep breathing. What else did he say? Another thing that he said to me came after I'd been there for just a few weeks. And I said to him, I'm new here. And I can't tell what's going on. It's very confusing. What's going on? And he said to me, Captain, never look at the big picture. And uh, that was an epiphany, actually, that served me well in my remaining time in Vietnam. It's not the sort of thing that you would expect to tell to aspiring young leaders or, uh, or even senior leaders who are supposed to look at the big picture. But for those of us in a situation on the ground where things overall are not going so well, and we can't control that, but we can control what's going on in our little area, our little domain, and see that that goes well. Mike, I want to thank you for your time being here on The Spear today and sharing your experiences in South Vietnam with us. Thank you, Tim. It's been an honor. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.